Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you today. I could not be more delighted than to have the opportunity to uh, sit and have a conversation here with uh, someone who I look up to. Is uh, a very, very special person, a, a fantastic investor, uh, successful by all you know yardsticks that you would want to look at. But at the same time, uh, you know, over the last two, three years, I've had the opportunity to meet with him, interact with him, get to know him, and 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 I feel so privileged uh, to have had the opportunity to do that. So, just in terms of uh, you know a little bit of uh, a brief formal introduction, uh, Ed Walkenheim is a graduate from. Williams College and Harvard Business School, where he was a Baker Scholar. After three years at Goldman Sachs, he joined Central National Corp as an analyst and then portfolio manager, and in 1987 founded Greenhaven Associates, which now manages about $7 billion in assets. He's a value investor, married with four children and six grandchildren. Um, he plays tennis and he wakes up at five in the morning every day. I was not supposed to talk about some of this, but you know, uh, we'll talk more during the conversation. Uh, please ask him questions about his routine uh, so that we can throw more color there. He's the vice chair of uh, Central National Goddessman, an international paper company with revenues of about $6 billion. He's the chairman of WNET, which is National Education Television, trustee and chair finance committee of the Museum of Modern Art. He's the life trustee of New York Public Library and Skidmore College. His interests include modern art, tennis, the outdoors, and photography. So without further ado, friends, please join me in welcoming Ed Walkenheim. And I should also mention before you begin that, you know, uh, in my bag, one of the, you know, prized possessions I have is this book, uh, Common Stocks and Common Sense by Ed Walkenheim himself. I have an autographed copy, which I cherish and, and, and I like it a lot. This, this is a fantastic book because a lot of times we're talking about theories and concepts and what I loved about the book that you wrote was this was talking stocks as case studies. So, so thank you so much for everything, and it's really nice to have you here with us, Ed. Sarab, thank you, and thank you for that very generous uh, introduction. Um, in late 2015, Delta Airlines purchased a 777 airplane for $7.7 .7 million. A new plane sells for close to $200 million. There were a lot of 777s around on the market at that time used, and a number of hedge fund managers jumped on this, including a friend of mine who I played tennis with, and shorted the stock or sold the stock on the basis that help. If there are a lot of 777s around and they're selling for low prices, many airlines will cancel their orders with Boeing for new airplanes and buy an inexpensive 777. After all, they can fix it up and it'll be as good. And Boeing's stock declined very late into 
2015 into 2016, and it was trading below 120, it was trading below 10 times what the company could earn two years hence. Um, the analysts were focused in on this one negative, were emotional about it. A year and a half later, the stock had doubled, and now the stock is selling at about triple that $120 price. At about the same time, Airbus, uh, of course the competitor of Boeing, not only was tarnished with this concept that there were too many wide-body airplanes around, but also was having startup problems, which are very common. Uh, startup problems with their A320 airplane getting sufficient number of jet engines from Pratt & Whitney and getting enough uh, for the 350 uh, laboratory doors and seats for the three A350 airplane. Um, and their stock, the stock of Airbus, fell to about 55. It is now selling at about twice that. Again, analysts were focused in on the two negatives of the wide-body planes, and they were focused in on the startup costs, and they sort of ignored everything else. Uh, currently, uh, General Motors stock, uh, I think General Motors earned about $6 this year, selling not much more above 35. The short-term negative concept is that Automobile sales in the United States, which are running at about a $17 million rate, 17 million car rate, um, are too high and will come down and therefore stay away from General Motors. It's that simple. Uh, we look at General Motors differently. First of all, it's really not an automobile company anymore. It's a truck company. Uh, about $65 billion of their revenues and over 60% of their profits come from pickup trucks, uh, commercial vans and SUVs on truck bodies, not on automobiles. It's really not an automobile company. It should be General Motors trucks. And the truck business, uh, really where General Motors and Ford have enviable positions with barriers around it, typically 16, 17, 18% operating margins, is a really good business. So you've got this company that's basically a very good business selling at now, uh, six, seven times earnings, seven, eight times earnings, depending on what you use. And we think the company could earn $8 uh, two years hence. So it's only at less than five times that for a very good company. Um, again, the analysts are focused in on one negative at the expense of everything else. Uh, one other example could be the home builders. Uh, my friend who shorted uh, Boeing uh, in early 2016 has been shorting the home builders this year, and they are down 15% because of fear that interest rates will end the housing cycle. Um, interest rates are one consideration. There are many other considerations. We're underbuilt as a nation. Um, Lenar, which in my opinion is an extremely well-managed company, very well positioned within the industry, um, should earn maybe about 850 per share two years hence and the stock is selling in the low 50s. It's down about 15% this year. Um, it's a stock, uh, the home building industry is improving. I would say home building was not a very good business 10 or 15 years ago, because it's an asset heavy business. The business is becoming an asset like business because the companies are purchasing much less land. They're following a company called NVR that you might know about, that for years has purchased very little land, and has had, as a result, large cash flows which they're reinvested in purchasing their own stock. Uh, the other companies seeming are following it. So Lenar now, in my opinion, should be selling at, I don't know, 13, 14, or 15 times earnings. And if you multiply that by 850, you've got a home run, if I can use an analogy to baseball. 
I've noticed this over the years. Uh, I've been in this business for a long time. Uh, analysts and portfolio managers constantly overfocus, in my opinion, on short-term negatives, and usually one short-term negative, not considering, uh, in their own minds, all the other positives and all the other fundamentals about a company. And I started asking myself, why did they do this? And because they do it over and over and over again, I think it is really part of the DNA. It's hardwired. People, and Howard Marks was talking about this a little bit this morning, become emotional, they become short-term oriented, and I think often too negative. And because they do this over and over again, I think it is really part of the DNA. So how did it become part of the DNA? And I have a thesis for that, and I can't, I can't prove the thesis, but our DNA today is about 99 points something same, the same as it was 200 years ago, 200,000 years ago, we were hunter-gatherers. So what happened when we were hunter-gatherers? And I could give you an example. I could divide this room in half. And the left-hand side, you all here are emotional people that are short-term oriented. When you see a negative situation, you want to react and react immediately. So that's this half of the room. This half of the room, you're all hunter-gatherers, are uh, a part of a band that is different. You are more... Uh, intellectual, you're not as emotional, not as a short-term oriented, you think about all the considerations. So we're now gathered around, let's say it's, it's the evening, it's a beautiful evening, and we've got a fire going here, and it's been a wonderful day, we've got some pigs which we're roasting, and we've got some, we've got some fruit, and we've got some nuts, and we're, things are really great. And all of a sudden, uh, a scout comes in, and he says, help, there's another band out there, there, there are two or three times as many of them as us, seem to be heading in this direction. They look mean, they look stronger than we are, they're carrying spears, they're carrying clubs, and they got some pain on their face, and I'm really worried. So what happens? This side of the room, the emotional, short-term side of the room says, we're out of here. Uh, negative reaction to a short-term event, and they flee. This side of the room tends to stay. And say, so, well, let's think about it. They've got this pig here. It's a beautiful evening. Maybe they're not going to come here. Maybe we'll, we'll take, see them closer. We'll take a look. We can always, you know, maybe get away later on. Or maybe we can talk to them and negotiate, and you stay. Well, over 200,000-year period of time, this scene probably happened, I don't know, 10, 20 times a year, millions of times. And, of course, enough of the times that band out there that looked like enemies were enemies, and those that stay got defeated killed, or even worse, eaten. Um, these side of the room, the side that are emotional and short-term oriented, were the survivors. So the gene that survived over 200,000 years was the emotional, short-term, negative gene. And exactly the right gene to survive as hunter-gatherers is the wrong gene today to survive as investors and do well as investors. And that's my thesis. Of course, I can't prove it. I can't go back and be a hunter-gatherer. Um, there wasn't a recorded history at that period of time, but, but it seems logical. It seems that so much of human behavior is genetic and goes back to the time we were hunter-gatherers. And there's actually been some books read about the, uh, written about this. Um, the only thing that we can do about it, I think, as investors, is realize this and then spend time analyzing ourselves. Um, I know I spent, years ago, about 10 or 15 years ago, I realized I spent countless hours analyzing companies and industries, and almost no time analyzing myself as an investor. How do I think? What decisions do I make? Why did I make them? What have I done right? What have I done wrong? What can I do better? 
how do I spend my time? And I, I could probably go around this room, and I think probably you, most of you would admit that you don't spend enough time analyzing yourself as an investor. Um, it's a difficult thing to do, self-analysis, but I think if you do that, it helps overcome some of the negative attributes of being in our business, of being emotional, short-term oriented, et cetera. So um, that is what I've been doing a lot of thinking about, and now I'm gonna turn it over to Saurabh. So thanks, Ed. In your book, uh, you mentioned in one of the first chapters that you have a method for taking a pulse of the market. And where it is in terms of normalized levels, uh, as far as the S&P 500 is concerned. Wondering if you could share with the audience what you think of the market today and, and talk a little bit about the methodology. Sure. Well, we never have an opinion on the market. If I did, I'd be wrong. And I studied mathematics in college. And from a mathematical point of view, there are just too many variables when it comes to something like the stock market. I, when we look at an investment, I like to say I'm buying the stock because one or two things. It tends to be 10 or 20 things is a greater chance I could be wrong. When it comes to the stock market, there's so many variables. I couldn't even identify the variables if I could identify them to analyze them and then to come to some reasonable conclusion and then to know what everybody else already has concluded about the market because I think the market's too high, but everybody else has thought it's too high already. That piece of information is not good. And if I could do all that, then there's going to be some new piece of information that comes in that I never thought about or that nobody ever could think about. Um, that would upend all previous considerations. So I don't think it's very productive to predict what the market's going to do. We simply have a trend line for the market. If the market's above trend line, we become more cautious. If the market's below, well, this is how it marks again. Uh, if the market is below trend line, we become more aggressive, if anything. So to give you an example, the market is above trend line today, clearly. So I was looking at a stock of a company that I knew the other day, um, earlier this week. And the first thing I did is look at the balance sheet. And the balance sheet had become more adverse. They had made two acquisitions, so they had more, since we owned the stock, they have more debt and a lot of goodwill. And I said, you know, given the height of the market, I'm more risk adverse than normal. I'm just not going to spend any time on the company. So, so basically, that's what we do. Makes sense. And in one of your recent interviews, I believe this was with Jim Cramer, um, and, and this interview, for those of you who have not seen it, was um, headlined, uh, the best investor you've never heard of. Uh, and oh. he was interviewing Ed. I, I don't know about that, especially <laughs> the best investor part. <laughs> so anyways, um, a couple of other stocks that you mentioned there were uh, Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. was wondering if you could share high level what, what your thoughts are on those. Yeah, I think, frankly, we're having a field day today. Um, Value stocks have been relatively out of favor, and probably absolutely out of favor, and our stocks are very out of favor uh, sentiment. Uh, Citigroup, you know, again, it is so simple. We had our own projections of getting to somewhere between 8 and $10 per share in 2020, and this is what we do. We look out two years, we judge the quality of the company, the cash flow, and everything else that everybody else judges, and we put a P ratio on that, and that's our goal. So we had that, and then a year ago, in July actually of 2017, management had a presentation, and they had us going from, in their own projections, uh, and this is before the decrease in corporate taxes, they had us going from $5 per share, roughly, for the 12 months that ended uh, June 2017, 
to $9 a share for 2020. So obviously, we didn't take those numbers at face value. Uh, we scrubbed the numbers. You should never ask your barber if you need a haircut. Uh, and but we came out with reasonably the same logical conclusions that they did. And of that gain, half of it comes from share repurchases. They have a big T T DTA. They're overcapitalized. The DTA means that they're generating more cash than they're reporting for earnings. Yes. And, um, and they're buying back a lot of stock. Um, they've just given permission for the Fed to buy back 22, well, not to distribute to shareholders $22.6 billion worth of um, cash. This is for $160 billion for the market next, cap? Pardon? The market cap is 160 relative to that, uh, yeah. roughly? Yeah, so they can buy back $22.6 million who are paid out in dividends. Uh, I think they're going to do $17.6 billion in, in share repurchases for the next four quarters. Uh, it's a big percentage of the outstanding shares, as you pointed out. But if you look at the company, it is, um, it's, it's a pretty darn good company. They have a division called, uh, uh, it's Treasury, Treasury and Trade Solutions, which contribute about 18% of the company's earnings. That's a very good business. They and J.P. Morgan in the world dominate that. It has to do with some complicated transactions having to do with trade. Uh, they have um, an investment banking business that has about 9% of earnings. And that business takes almost no capital, so it generates a lot of free cash flow. What's the risk in that business? Um, I would put a 15 or 16 multiple on that. So if you put a 10 multiple on all the rest of the business, the company should be worth 12 or 13 times earnings. So it should be worth now, there was $9 a share based on a 33% tax rate. The tax rate now 25. is 24%. Yeah. So that adds $1.20. So we're, we're, we're estimating between 950 and 10 in 2020. If anything, they're ahead of schedule. So it's a stock that'd be $120, $130 stock. Uh, and the stock today is about 71. I mean, this is, it's a, it's a field day. Do you see similar stuff in Goldman Sachs? Yeah, not quite as exciting in Goldman Sachs. Uh, you've got a parallel situation of having two really good businesses in investment banking where they are a giant. That, to me, is a business that's worth 20 times earnings. That earns about seven fifty per share. And then they earn about three fifty per share in investment management, where I hope there's nobody from Goldman Sachs here today, but I don't think they do a very good job. I apologize for saying this. <laughs> if anybody's from Goldman, but it, it, you know, it generates care. The investment management business is a good business. They just don't do a very good job at it. But they've got 1.5 trillion under management, and that generates about 350 per share. And let's say put a 15 multiple on that. So we put 10% multiple on their market making and their investing and their lending. And we think the earning power of the company is about $29 per share. Uh, in the first six months of this year, they ran at a $26 per share rate, just a little bit under. Um, so put a 13 multiple on uh, $29, and you get a shot that's 400. It's today about 240. And buy, the important thing is, that gets me excited, you're buying a high-quality company with a strong balance sheet, a very strong management with a very deep bench. I mean, they hire among the best and the brightest uh, in the nation year after year after year, and some of those stay and reach the top. And I've known some of the, I, I used to work at Goldman Sachs, I've known some of the people around the company, and they are fabulous people. Uh, and this close, after a financial crisis, I worry less about Goldman Sachs doing things that I would not approve of in terms of risk taking. So to me, it's an exciting opportunity. There's a common theme a lot, around a lot of the ideas that you talked about, which is there is, or there appears to be, 
a short-term misunderstanding or pessimism about the issues facing some of these businesses. In your book, you talk about your friend Danny Dinner Date, as you called him, yes, who would want to wait for the first sign of things turning around. Uh, wondering if you could share uh, some of those thoughts with the group here. Yeah, well, Danny Dinner Date actually I breakfast with. He actually is is a very smart, intelligent man. Uh, as smart as intelligent, two different things. Um, actually, a graduate of Yale and did very well academically at Yale. Um, and he makes mistakes, he's a very mediocre investor. And he makes some of these mistakes that I was talking about earlier, he's too short-term oriented, he's too emotional and too negative short-term. Uh, so he makes mistake after mistake after mistake, and I talk to him about his mistakes because I want to learn, and, but he makes them over, and he says, yes, you're right, you're right, I'm gonna do it differently in the future, and then he makes them again. Uh, and that is why I think so much of investing is behavioral to begin with, but hardwired secondarily. In fact, in the book, I think you, you talk about uh, that behavioral aspect. You say, sometimes it takes a number of years for the prices of undervalued shares to increase to their intrinsic values or be bought by positive events. How important is, is patience during that time? And, and during that time, the intermediate time, how do we distinguish um, just being patient from being incorrect? Yeah, being obstinate. Um, good question. So, number one, to be patient, you've got to train yourself. And then, luckily, I've trained, you have to train your clients. Luckily, I've got one huge client, uh, one family, and they understand me, and so I don't have to train them. But you have to... You can't make short-term decisions to please your clients because you want to sell a stock that looks bad or you want to have good performances. You make a lot of mistakes doing that. So having the right clients and training the clients becomes mandatory to take this longer point of view. And then the question is, you know, everybody is going to make investments and you run into an unanticipated problem. And the question is, you then re-go back, look at the company and say, is the company still a sound company and there's one little problem here or did I just make a mistake? Now, if you made a mistake, I think you've got to recognize it and reverse yourself and sell the stock. But if it's a company that has developed a problem, we're talking about Whirlpool earlier. Whirlpool to us is a very, very strong company that's run into a integration problem. They acquired a company in Europe, Indesit, and they're having much worse startup problems than they ever thought they would have and that is hurting the current earnings. So the question is, you look at Whirlpool, 60% of their business is in the United States in terms of revenues, and the bulk of their earnings in the United States, and it's doing great in the United States, it's doing well in other countries of the world, so you don't sell a stock because it's doing bad in one part of the world where their problem is startup costs, which can be resolved as opposed to having a bad position being obsoleted by competition permanently or some other permanent problem. It's a temporary problem. So as you know, we've been talking about cryptocurrencies and cutting-edge technology this morning, it is only fitting that we talk about laundry appliances and refrigerators yeah. and the technology and, and what excites you about that. <laughs> I, I don't have the, uh, the technological background or the intellect to invest competitively in cryptocurrencies and in some of these technology companies. There's just too much competition. 
So we want to, we want to fish in waters where there are not a, a lot of other fishermen. And right now, particularly because the sentiment on our companies is terrible, which is the opportunity, um, an area like washing machines interests us because it interests so few other people. It's as simple as that. I mean, we've got to, you've got to be a contrarian. And I think Howard Marks, again, it was a, I think he gave a very good address this morning. Um, the price of a stock today reflects the conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. So a stock is selling at a price today because most of you think it's selling at that price. And to make money, I've got to have an idea that the stock is worth a lot more than that. And by definition, it's a very lonely position. You've got to be a contrarian. Um, so we are constantly contrarians, and we're contrarian now in some of the stocks that we own. They're out of favor. Uh, General Motors is out of favor. We own Ford. It's out of favor. We own Whirlpool. It's out of favor. Citigroup's not in favor. I could go on. Um, actually, I want to read a couple of sentences from the book. Uh, this is from the chapter on Whirlpool. This was written um, three years ago, I guess, now? Yeah. Um, 2015, 2016, yeah. Okay. So, during the spring of 2014, I heard rumors that Whirlpool might be interested in acquiring Indeceit, a European manufacturer of appliances that had put itself up for sale. I immediately wrote a letter to Jeff Fittig, Whirlpool's then chairman and CEO, suggesting that Whirlpool did not, not acquire Indeceit. So that was a good uh, thought at that point. But, but you know, using that as an example, talk to, ab to us about um, how managements typically tend to think of uh, decisions and integration and how important do you think it is to interact with the management along the way? Okay, so I was wrong twice. Uh, when, in response to the letter, where the Whirlpool was just between 2011 when we bought the stock and 2014, everything went right. The earnings went from two or three dollars a share to over 11 dollars per share. The stock soared. Um, I didn't want them to, excuse the language, screw it up. They would, by acquiring Indeset, they would have to devote management time and effort to the integration. They would put debt on the balance sheet. And they were just at a point where they could be buying back a lot of stock. And I liked the United States, and I didn't like the currency risk. We tend to be US-centric because, because one of the most valuable things I've ever done in my life was be on the board and involved with this paper company, Central National Goddessman, that you mentioned. I've been vice chair since 1979. And the business is all over the world. And I see in many cases how difficult it is to do business in various countries outside the world, particularly in emerging countries. I, I see it firsthand. Uh, if, I had, if I could do, um, I also wrote in the book that when I first joined Central National Goddessman, um, my boss at that time said, Ed, you're not going to learn anything sitting at a desk, go out and be a, see companies and be on the boards of companies. And I think it would be extremely valuable if every investor could be on the board of a company because they would see things completely differently. They would see things as they really are as opposed to an outsider looking in. It was one of the most valuable things that ever happened to me. I was on the board of the worst companies in the world, probably. I had to get off some of the boards because they were so bad. But I learned a lot, and I think that makes me a better analyst and a better portfolio manager. And your boss used to repeat things twice, uh, right? He was a, a brilliant investor, and um, when he made a point, he would say it twice, he would say it twice, and sometimes he would say it three times. Um, but uh, he, he, I learned so much from him. 
I wrote this letter to Jeff Fetig because I was so happy with the direction of the company. Then he sat down with me and showed me the profit, increased profitability of acquiring these two and integrating. They already had a subsidiary in Europe. Indesit had, of course, an appliance business in Europe. And if they could take the two platforms and merge them onto one with commonality of parts, there'd be huge cost savings, tremendous synergies. And he convinced me of that. So I became enthusiastic about the merger. The problem is, and this is a problem that comes up over and over again, startup costs, whether it be integration of two companies or starting up a new product, usually costs a lot more than expected and takes a lot more than expected. And go back to Boeing, because we own Boeing stock, and I thought I've owned Boeing stock twice in the last four or five years. Boeing is a superior company in terms of technology, in terms of management, and it could go on. With the 787, was, the plane was originally supposed to cost a little over $10 billion to develop. It ended up costing $30 billion, and they were two years late for a great company. Now, right now, with the KC-46 tanker, they are late, mm. and I think they spent a billion dollars over they expected, which the government's not going to reimburse them for, that they're having to eat. But I've seen that after company after company after company. Uh, delays and, and, and additional costs. Whirlpool is an example of that. Um, in, the, in the midst of taking these two different platforms and integrating them together, they ran into part shortages. Part, some parts that they couldn't produce fast enough, but some parts they couldn't get from suppliers, so they couldn't produce enough washing machines and dryers of the new models. So they could not de deliver to the retailers, so the retailers couldn't sell because they didn't get inventory, then the retailers cut back on floor space. So today, the retailers in general have been given more floor space to competitors. Indeset is now integrated. The factories are starting to work well, but they have to regain the floor space, which I think in laundry may take a year or two, in kitchen for various reasons, the way business is done in Europe, it's take three or four years. But this is an example. Whirlpool today is selling at about 124 or five. I yes. don't look at it every day. They are having a horrendous year. Steel prices hurt them. Brazil hurt them with the currency. Um, and, of and the European problems have hurt them. And with this horrendous year, they're earning f about $14.50 per share. Yes. Uh, 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 and so it's eight times horrendous earnings, depressed earnings. And if they can solve, half solve Europe, and Brazil is really well positioned when the economy comes back, and it will because people have laundry to do. Um, there's no reason why that company couldn't earn 19 to 20 dollars per share uh, in 2020. If Europe fully came back, which I don't expect, it would be into the 20s. Um, in the meanwhile, they are generating now that Indeset is integrated and they don't have integration costs. Next to the, this year, they're generating about 850 million dollars of free cash flow. They're buying back stock, and next year, uh, the free cash flow estimates, in our opinion, are about 1.1 billion. And they'll be buying back a lot more stock. So with the Just stock that's cheap, um, right. we want the stock to stay low, actually. I'd like the stock to stay low for another year or two and then skyrocket um, because they can buy back a lot of stock at cheap prices. The market cap is around $8 billion, if I remember The market correctly. cap is 65 billion shares outstanding. The market cap is $8 billion. It's $21 billion of revenues. And one of the things we look at are stocks that are selling at very high revenues relative to the market cap because it means, and I'm not talking about grocery chains or something like that where the value added is small, but it means for manufacturing companies or where the companies with substantial value added, 
that either the margins are low and could improve, or the P ratio is low and could improve. And you stand a better chance of really making a lot of money in those kinds of situations. Um, our strategy is to try and buy companies where if we're right, we can double our money, which I think we could do in Whirlpool if you put a 15 multiple on $20, it's a $300, uh, 15 times three, $450 stock, and it's 240 today, so that's a double. I think you could make a case for General Motors, Ford, and a number of other holdings, Lenar, uh, doubling or more than doubling over two years, if, it, if they work out. So we shoot for that. But the beauty of buying a company that's lots of revenues, if the margins go from 3% to 6%, the earnings double before interest expense and other. Yes. So you have a chance of doubling your money. If they go up 3% from 20% to 23%, they go up 15%. Yes. So the opportunity, obviously, to make a lot of money is greater yes. when you're buying a stock that has very large revenues relative to the market cap. Again, if it's a company that produces substantial value added. And then in terms of capital allocation, and just, just staying with Whirlpool for one last uh, question here, um, they sold their compressor business and they did a tender offer a couple of months ago, is that right? That is correct. He, he knows our companies better than I do. Um, yes, they did. They had a subsidiary that made compressors. Um, they had an opportunity. Uh, two companies came into them, a Chinese company, a Japanese company, and wanted to buy the compressor business. The Japanese company made an offer they couldn't refuse. And so the deal should close, hopefully in the fourth quarter, um, for about a billion dollars. And they immediately put in a tender offer for a billion dollars worth of stock, which uh, was completed on May 22nd. And Ed, now stepping back a little bit, in the beginning of the book, you write that you know our overall strategy is to buy, buy deeply undervalued stock in strong and growing companies um, where you know we anticipate positive changes to occur. Now, in some cases, these positive changes could could test your patience and take time to to actually come about and be realized and appreciated by the market. And I was wondering if, you know, if we take, for example, FedEx as an example, if you could just walk through the journey uh, with an example to illustrate the process and how one implements it. Yeah, it's, it's really amusing. If you look at our portfolio at any one given a period of time, it's more filled with the losers than the winners because and we did buy Boeing, and Boeing did double, so we sold it. But FedEx has been a stock, unfortunately, that's been in our portfolio for 2007. And we bought the stock for a reason, a change. DHL had tried to get in the North American market, and to gain a foothold, they reduced prices for the delivery of packages. Um, they were not competitive. We thought they would have to drop out. If they dropped out, whatever share they picked up, FedEx would pick up, but more important than that, prices would go back up and FedEx would be an interesting stock. Of course, right after we purchased the stock, uh, the financial crisis came along and FedEx stock went down. And then FedEx stock started to recover and the company started to recover, but then oil prices went to above $100 per barrel, which, and I won't take your time to explain it, but caused a discombobulation within their network as a lot of traffic moved from air to the ground because the ground is much more fuel efficient and the fuel surcharges are much less. That threw them into a loop and they had disappointing earnings, but the fundamentals of the company were there. Mm. 
and then more recently they acquired TNT in Europe, and they had a cyber attack, which last year cost them $400 million, but more important than that has set them back in terms of their cash flow because they've had to accelerate a lot of um, integration costs. Um, but So we've had three major disappointments in the stock, but this is a very strong company, very well managed with a strong balance sheet that seems to do all the right things. So we, we just had patience. As we looked out two or three years, the values have always been substantially above where the price is sold. So we hope they will get there. So our experience is we own a portfolio, we typically own about 15 to 20 stocks. Today we own 17. Obviously, some stocks work out better than expected, and some stocks take longer than expected. Uh, hopefully, it's a timing difference. It's not that we've analyzed a company wrong, reverse ourselves, and have to sell it. That does happen. But most of the time when we're wrong, it's things take too long to develop as we expected. And that's certainly been the case with FedEx. Makes sense. Well, thank you so much. With that, I'd like to open it up to the audience for Q&A. Just behind you, I think. Yeah, the mic. Yeah. There you go. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, on the work you've done on autos, I'm curious of whether you've looked at fiat as well and if you could rank the relative value between um, GM and Ford and, and fiat, and if you've looked at it. That's one question. The second question, quickly, is have you looked at and have you thought about the uh, change in the sulfur content in oil uh, going from 3.5% to uh, half a percent at the end of 19 and different ways to to play that potentially. Uh, one of the earlier speakers spoke yeah. about that, and I'm just wondering if you've thought about that. Uh, yeah. So um, as far as the sulfur, I've, I have not given it any thought. Um, it may be an interesting idea of some change that will create an opportunity, and that's, that's a good idea. Thank you for reminding me. Um, and the first I just the question was on uh, fiat, and I made a mistake. I looked at fiat uh, before the stock went up three or four years ago. And um, I was interested in the Jeep because I looked around, there were a lot of Jeeps, and I thought the Jeeps could really gain market share. And for various reasons, mainly the debt of the company, the finances of the company, we didn't buy the stock. Um, I think a lot of our clients would be better off not being with us, but with somebody that is, has, is less risk adverse than we are. We're very risk adverse. And it was just the balance sheet of fiat plus the nature of the business plus being an Italian company. Um, that caused us to pass on the idea. Um, so right now, our interest is trucks. We think it's a good business. In terms of pickup trucks, um, Ford and GM both basically have a 38% market share. GM is a little bit below that this year because they're coming out with a new line, and when they come up with the new line, they'll pick up market share. Ford came out with the F new F-150 a couple years ago. They picked up market share, but it should sell at about 38%. Dodge, which is Fiat, uh, has the Ram. They have a new Ram that just came out that supposedly is much better than the old Ram, but they don't have the consumer franchise, the history, um, probably the quality of their vehicle that, that Ford has and that General Motors has in their full-size pickup trucks. The full-size pickup truck is a 2.5 million uh, vehicle per year. And then when you start adding the vans where Ford is very strong and General Motors is strong, and the very large um, uh, SUVs 
Um, Ford and General Motors are much stronger. The reasons to buy the stock that you'd have much less reason to buy fiat stock. Thank you. I'd love to hear more about the lessons you learned serving on company boards. Uh, you know, if you have any more to share, and then if you could just kind of sum up uh, what new perspective that's brought to your investments and what sorts of companies you might say no to now that you would have previously said yes to. Well, I was on the board of these companies many, many years ago when I had a crew cut um, and, and, and stayed away from being on boards of companies right now because it takes so much time and the legal responsibilities. Um, yeah, there is one important lesson that does transfer itself to being an analyst, and that is, what does a board member see? A board member sees a book, a board book, that is presented to him from usually the CEO, he may not prepare at all, but it's carefully vetted by the CEO. And the CEO may go through that board book and say, you know, this word is a little controversial, it may not make me look good, I'm going to change this word and put this word in. So they look at a very, the, direct trucks, the directors get a very scrubbed board book and scrubbed information. And it's very hard for an outside board member to really know what's going on in the company. So then you would say, okay, what board member can go down and you know, spend time with the company? In a practical sense, you can't tell the CEO, I want to go visit this plant, that plant, that plant, that plant. I want to go through here, I want to speak to this guy. You're interfering with the corporation and the way it's done. Directors can't practically do that. So the directors in most cases are really in the dark, largely. Um, it takes many, many, many years to get a feel and a sense and you get a rhythm for a company whether it's being well run. But it's very tough to be an outside director for that reason. Uh, and I, the analogy also would be is the information that we get from companies whether it be at conferences or other presentations by management, they are so scrubbed. I'm sure different slides are going through by the CEO, please change this word, please this, we've got to look good, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. So again, you should never ask your barber if you need a haircut. Um, you've got to be very, very careful. But that's the one lesson I learned, how little I could really know about the company. But, but other than that, you do learn about how companies run, how difficult it is to be a CEO. Sometimes when I see a CEO retiring at the age of 52, and I say, what, he's sitting on top of the world, he's got a jet airplane at his beck and he can fly around, he's asked to be on television, it, he gets this huge salary and bonuses, it's the top of the world. The CEO has gotta be going from early in the morning, late at night, worrying about everything, flying around the country, constantly being prepared, it's, you just wear yourself out. It's very, very, very difficult. And for that reason, it's better to be the CEO of a simple company than a complicated company. Um, your insights about being on the board and what you learn and how uh, and tough... Yeah, I'm having the mic a little bit closer. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Your insights about being on the board of a company and how you don't... It's tough for an outside shareholder to really know what's going on is really insightful. From all your years of experience, what techniques or, or uh, things do you do to truly get a sense of, of what's going on at a company uh, that if you're not on the board? What, what do you do to get those insights? That's good. It's very 
difficult. I have been fooled by management. I do meet with managements, but I've been fooled so many times that I don't have much confidence in my ability to judge managements from a, a couple of hours I can spend with them. I think, and I'll draw an analogy between sports. I played tennis, and I'm trying to learn golf. And tennis, which I played all my life, after a while, you don't have to think through the strokes. It becomes natural. The ball comes, you're there, and the racket's there. And you know, at the US Open, they're not thinking. It's, it's all instinctive. So I think if you follow a company for a long period of time, you're familiar with an industry in a long period of time, it becomes second nature. It becomes instinctive as to whether the company is being well run or not being well run. And an analogy that I have as the home builders, we started getting involved with the home builders in the 1990s, about 1997, the company called US Home. And we owned them to 2005, we came back in 2014-15 into owning the home builders. I came back, I had the rhythm, I understood the business, I, I could start judging whether companies were doing the right thing and not doing the right thing, in my opinion, of course, I could be wrong also. But it, it just takes a lot of time the longer, I think experience is very important in our business. Um, so I just say lots of time, and then after a while you feel the rhythm. Otherwise, it's very difficult to judge a company. You see what management wants you to see, and, and that's the problem. And, and the danger is you can study a company and say, I think I know the company, but then you haven't looked at two or three or four other things you never thought of before that might have changed your opinion. So it, it's difficult to challenge. And that is why I make a lot of mistakes, because I go into companies and I, I, I do the work and I think, hey, this is this, and then a year later I learn, oh boy, I, I never thought about that. And Ed, just to follow up a little bit on this, this thing comes up where, uh, you know, Warren Buffett is often quoted as saying that, you know, we want to own the best companies and hold them forever. What is your take on that? Well, I feel strongly otherwise, particularly in this environment, there's so many disruptive technologies. Um, we have a saying that over time, and I think maybe a Warren Buffett saying, that um, all technologies sooner or later become toasters. Um, it is true, it's the history, and that happens with companies. Great businesses do change over time. Warren Buffett was interested in the newspaper companies, mm -hmm. and that is a real problem area right now. Yes. He bought an encyclopedia company, that's a real problem. Coca-Cola has matured and is receiving competition from water and healthier drinks as opposed to the sugar water and artificial fl other flavoring of, of Coca-Cola. Um, and I could go on and on and on of companies that were great companies 10 or 15 or 20 years ago that are no longer great companies. Um, so I think history has proved out. I think um, I can't look beyond two or three years when I'm looking at a company. Got it. Thanks. Any other questions? Yeah? Um, yeah, just thinking back to your Citigroup uh, thesis, um, which, which by the way, I, I really like and own it as well, but, but a one question that occurs to me is that, you know, one could say it's a pretty light on variant perception idea, it's a pretty straightforward mathematical exercise to get to, to the earnings power you get to. Um, so does that concern you from, you know, a quality of the thesis standpoint that there's value there if, if that pans out, but there's not necessarily um, something that you said that's, you know, a, a really differentiated view about the business? 
Right. That's a very, very good point. So usually we buy stocks because we think we see a change or changes that other people, that are positive changes, not negative changes, that other people haven't seen. And we bought Citigroup about two years ago when we saw the following changes. One, we thought there's a high probability interest rates would increase. Um, and that, of course, would help earnings. Uh, the, comp the banks were under regulatory pressures of all sorts, including the, the regulatory requirements were uncertain. But the whole sentiment around financial service companies still was very uncertain and very negative, uh, Occupy Wall Street type mentality. Um, and of course, there were still a number of lawsuits out against Citigroup and the other financial service companies uh, two or three or four years ago. When we, so we thought that the lawsuits eventually would get solved, that the sentiment would turn more neutral, that the regulatory situation would, would even out, and that interest rates eventually would go up. So we're in the midst of those changes. So we bought Citigroup when the stock was selling much lower than 70, and we now do think it's worth well over $100 per share, and we're in the midst of getting there. So I don't have a unique thesis about Citigroup. I think it sometimes takes a while, particularly at a time when value stocks are out of favor, for the positive attributes to be recognized in the stock, and I think that that's the only reason why we still have to, to still own Citigroup. I mean, it's so cheap. But, but I don't have a particular thesis right now that is that new, that makes us newly excited about it. The theses were developed three or four years ago, and they've largely played out. I think also, if you look at the earnings estimates on Wall Street, they're not as high as $10 a share for 2020. So uh, the consensus is well below that, so people do not believe that Earnings will reach that level. Hi, Ed. So my question is, I think as you were earlier saying that right now the markets are above the trend line, so they are sort of uh, pricey. And given that we are, uh, given that the financials tend to be cyclical, right? So if the down cycle comes, financials are typically hit harder, at least the previous, uh, the previous crisis was like that. Is that something that plays in your mind as you think at either Goldman or City? Well, um, so, I don't know. You're, the, the inference is that if the market goes down, the financials will leave the market down? Yeah. I, I or, don't or see any reason money. why that would happen. Um, it may have happened in the past, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen in the future. And if I go back to any analogy with the present time, it was 1998, 1999, when the tech, we had the technology stocks, we had the new economy and the old economy. And we at that time really lagged. We're lagging this year. We had a, I'm not going to kick myself too much. We had a very good 2016, 2017. This has been a tough year for value stocks. But we had a relatively tough time in 1998, 1999 when the market finally did correct with a very sharp decline in technology stocks, that's where the excesses are. It's not the whole stock market. We really had some great years. Uh, if I could have 2001 to 2005 or six again, um, I wouldn't be here. I'd be out on some yacht or I'd own an airplane flying in the sky. I'd be, I'd be a Rockefeller. I mean, I would love that again. So I don't think just because in one or two cases, financial stocks let the market down, that would happen again, particularly at this time when uh, value stocks seem to be 
I would say, below trend line in many cases. Certainly the autos, certainly the housing stocks, certainly the financial stocks that we follow. And it's the technology stocks that have caused the market to be above trend line. Um, thanks for your thoughts. Very interesting. Um, you, you mentioned value stocks as a category, and I'm just wondering what the definition is. Like, how do you know if a stock is a value stock? Um, we've had that debate. Um, it's obvious to you, but I'm not so yeah, sure it's obvious no. to me. So. We, we've had that debate continually uh, within our firm. Um, I, I think a value, and there's no easy answer because there's going to be stocks in the gray. It's not everything isn't a value stock or growth stock. There are things that are in between. But um, I think we're, we're risk adverse against permanent loss. I don't care. If the market went down 30% tomorrow, I wouldn't care. Because our stocks over a five or 10 year period will do fine. Um, but I worry about a permanent loss. So if a stock is selling at a high P ratio because of growth, which is the opposite of value, it's a growth stock. So value stocks sell based on some intrinsic value. Growth stocks usually have a higher P ratio because of the growth attributes of the stock. Now, if the growth slows down, not only will the earnings not come through, but the P-E ratio will be dampened, deservedly, and will probably stay down so it's a permanent loss. So I would say that growth stocks tend to be stocks that are purchased because of their growth rate as opposed to the intrinsic value, and tend to be stocks that are selling at higher P ratios. And again, there are stocks in between. Uh, and we, we, we debate many times, is this a growth stock or a value stock, or how do you tell the difference? Yeah? cheap. When you say value stocks are cheap, do you mean that stocks of a PE below 14 or 13, if you look at them, are cheap? Is that what you mean? Well, cheap is, and I'll go by company by company. When I can look at Whirlpool, which is has 40% of the appliance market in the United States, they own Maytag, they successfully integrated, they've got some KitchenAid's their brand, Gen Air, they've got a great position in the United States. I think it's a very well-managed company. They've got, the balance sheet is a little leveraged right now because they bought back a billion dollars worth of stock and they haven't got paid for the Embar Embarco sale yet. I look at, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great, it's a strong company. And its market cap is eight billion and this revenue is at 21 billion. It's earning 14.50 per share this year, a depressed year with a lot of things that were unanticipated that went wrong and the stock's 120-something. That's why I say, and I, and I could say the same thing for Citigroup, I could say the same thing for General Motors, for Ford, for, for Lennar, for Horton, and for some other stocks that we own, that in my, my judgment is that at least the value stocks that we own are unusually depressed at a time when the stock market is selling at above normal. We'll find out, if I come back here in two or three years, we'll find out whether I was right or not. But, um, Hopefully I'll be right, for our sake. And you've also written in the book that if you feel good, you're likely to do well. Um, and, and I ask that uh, to get more of your thoughts on, you know, over the years, the decades that you've been, uh, you know, at this um, art, at this sport, at this practice of value investing, whatever you want to call it, what are some habits and routine practices that have helped you? And what are some things that you, know, you would like to advise 
the audience here. Okay. So to be successful as a value investor, you have to have a contrarian view. The contrarian view is you're out alone. Everybody thinks this, so most people think this, and I think that. So to buy the stock, when the feelings are very different from yours, not only other portfolio managers, but maybe the press, Bloomberg, CNBC, they're saying the opposite of what you think, in many cases, you've got to have confidence. So you've got to train yourself to maintain that confidence. And I think also some of the confidence is a leadership-type personality that is ingrained, hardwired, and part of your DNA. I think some people are more confident and can make those decisions that other people aren't able to make. Some people are just followers. Um, but one of the things that I have done is, is sort of mental. Uh, if I have studied a company and made a reasoned decision and the company doesn't work out, I don't say I made a mistake. Because based on all the knowledge I had, based on all my analysis, I made a decision which I thought was the right decision. The outcome was not what I wanted. So I tend to say, I've always made the right decision. Don't worry about it. The outcome isn't the way I wanted it. But if you do that, you don't blame yourself for the bad decisions. You're more likely to maintain your confidence, and you're more likely to be able to buy stocks when other people don't want them. And I think that is the main psychological trait which I've tried to adopt and is still in the, the people who work in our office. Um, if you do your work, you're not going to make a mistake. Things may not turn out, and, and the outcome is never going to. Well, the other thing is, your decisions are based on the knowledge that you have. New things come along that can alter the fundamentals of a company that you couldn't possibly predict. So you can't, you can't blame yourself for that. Yes. Um, it's going to be, investing is probabilistic. And that's the, other, that's the other part. When I buy stocks, I know a certain percent aren't going to work out because investing is probabilistic. So when a stock doesn't work out, I don't say, I made a mistake or the outcome is bad. I say, well, this is one of the stocks that didn't work out. And if I'm ever in a situation where all the stocks worked out, I'm not taking enough risk. I should be fired. Mm. I mean, I don't want to tell you too much. It's where you draw the line with risk. But if I am so cautious, if I wait for Warren Buffett's perfect pitch, I may be called out on strikes before I ever hit the ball. I don't want to be called out on strikes. So I got to take some risk in buying companies where the future is uncertain. And uh, I sort of got, I want to make some mistakes. This also reminds me of what uh, Howard Marks said in the morning that between him and his partner, they've made mistakes along the years, but never once he said that uh, the other person is called out on mistakes because they're yeah. just part of the process. I mean, this, if you're managing a lot of money, which a lot of us in this room are doing, it can be nerve-wracking. And um, if you take it seriously, which you should do to take it seriously, so you've got to develop these defenses yeah. to protect your own ego, to protect your own confidence yeah. against what you are doing, particularly when things don't work out, and develop that culture within the office. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ed. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to speak with you. Well, thank you, and thank the audience for a lot of good questions. Thank you. Thank you.